Welcome to The Lex Factor, a lawfully good podcast where we'll brief you on the business of law so you can build a better practice and capture more billable hours. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Lex Factor. It's your host, Lauren, here. And your co-host, Brad. Welcome, Brad. Oh, thank you. That was like a buildup. I felt like I it know. Was... I was like, do I clap? I kind of wanted to not clap to see how you react. I think we need to move away from the clapping for me. I, I think so, I think too. I'm, I'm more regular now. I'm over it. Yeah. You're over I'm it? You're over, over me? It. I'm over you. That's why we have Belinda here. No. <laughs> um, no. So we are actually back today with Belinda Dantley from um, St. Louis University School of Law. She is a director for inclusion and diversity education, as well as a professor of child advocacy. So welcome back, Belinda. We're going to clap for you. Yes, yeah, so we'll clap for our guests now instead. I like that better. <laughs> I have not made it to regular yet, Brad, so please. Oh. <laughs> I was actually standing. I gave you a standing ovation. Belinda, yeah, we are so glad to have you back on the show. Um, and I would love to if just give everybody a refresher, who you are, what you do, what makes you tick. Absolutely. So um, you mentioned my role at St. Louis University School of Law, which I am so excited to be in. I'm alumna of the law school and remained active um, even in my work with child advocacy, where I was able to help CASA advocates um, for children in foster care navigate cultural differences between themselves and the students they were working with and advocating for. And I was able to bring that background to an institution that I love that has helped me um, be a really great advocate myself. Um, And I'm now able to do that full time with helping um, on the spectrum of people when it comes to prospective students looking to go to law school and navigating that process. Um, Then I'm also on the other end of the spectrum, able to help alum um, navigate issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and help them along their journey to creating inclusive spaces. And again, you know, we mentioned this last time, but it's so nice to to talk to somebody that just loves what they do and really gets to help people on a regular basis. You know, yeah, exactly. I used to work, I was at Build-A-Bear for a couple of years at the corporate office and I worked on the PR team and a lot with our giving program. And it was just, it was so rewarding to actually come in and make a difference every day and, and talk to people that you touch and you did something for. So um, it's not something that everybody gets to do or experience on a regular basis. So I think there's there's some envy of you going on over here. Well, I, I think it's important, too, that you have the passion and we can feel it, you know, in speaking to you because, you know, without that, it's going to be hard for you to pass that on to others. And so it's it's great to have those type of individuals that just care so much and to drive those type of topics. Yeah, that actually want to make right. a difference and it's, aren't just doing it because they have to. Right, absolutely. So at, you had mentioned, you know, your role at SLU there. And, um, you know, talk a little bit about uh, just a little bit more about that, about your team. How do you keep them engaged and still have that right mindset, that diverse mindset, and and make sure that's at the forefront, even in your role, in the roles of your team? I think a large part of it is making sure that they feel included in the process, that they also have a voice in what's going to happen at the law school, that um, it isn't a decision that's made by a small number of people for the masses, that students, faculty, and staff do have the ability to give their input on certain issues or concerns that they have um, with their experience at the law school, whatever their role is, um, but also that there are outlets for them to express those concerns and that they feel that they're going to be heard 
that they're able to give input on solutions on how to make things better. Um, and that they, because they're able to do that, they're invested in the outcome of the solution, whether it is program implementation or policy making. Um, it's something that truly does live by the standard of inclusion. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the entire journey. So obviously you as, as a leader, you do a great job, as you just mentioned, of keeping your team in the loop, letting them hear, feel like they're part of the process and keeping them involved the entire way. So what about after that? You know, you start to build new initiatives, programs, you have ideas that you're working towards, goals that you're working towards. Then what? How do you really put them into place and actually keep them in place? How do you actually change that culture? I know a big part of it is that data collection ahead of time and continuously during implementation of things. So um, doing things like climate surveys, um, understanding what the culture was before I got there. Um, I mentioned that I was a law student, so I understood a little bit of what it was like from that perspective when I was there. But there was 10 years in between me being a student and me being um a faculty member there. So the culture definitely changed a little bit. So understanding that what that was, right? Like what is the culture that I am now trying to make better? I've always, like I said, remained an involved alumna, but that's not the day-to-day. That's not in the halls of the law school. That's not um, sitting in the classrooms with the students. So um, taking the time to, to genuinely understand what that culture is like. But then also as a leader, knowing that even though I have not created the current culture that exists, I'm now a part of um, coming up with the plan, the solution, and the policies to change the areas that need to change. And because I love this law school, I love it enough to also see what's wrong with it so that I can come up with solutions and not ignoring um, the issues that exist. Yeah, I think that's a good point, too, because there's a lot of people out there that absolutely love their jobs. They love where they work, who the people they work with. But in all reality, there's there's something that you don't love about your job. It's not perfect. And it's it's OK to admit that. Um, and that's just part of, I think, being human and being real, like nothing is perfect. But yeah, you can still love your job. And there's something that you're probably not happy with. And, you know, regardless of what our topic is today, I'm actually really glad you said that because it kind of it helps people come back down and realize, hey, it's OK that I don't love everything about what I do. You know, perfect is ugly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect <laughs> is ugly. <laughs> it's the imperfections that make everything that was Worth deep. It. That was deep. I, yeah. I, I did that. Yeah. I, I wrote that. I did not actually. But. I know. I, I know. We know, Brad. We know. I stole that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what about everything that you just said, Belinda, but looking at it from an actual law firm perspective? You know, we talked the first time you were on the show about um, – finding diverse talent and getting diverse talent into your firm and, you know, from a student perspective too, how do they find places where diverse candidates are accepted and supported? So what about now, you know, you have this diverse talent, you're committed to making changes to your culture. How do you, how do you keep that going within the firm? How do you retain the diverse talent? How do you make sure that these programs are still moving forward and that data is consistently collected and analyzed? 
Mm-hmm. So I, you have to um, continue that. So I mentioned in the previous podcast, uh, state interviews and climate surveys. So they are tools to use to assess what the situation is now at your firm. Um, what do your retention and promotion numbers look like? Uh, in the CLE that I presented with you all, mm-hmm. um, I mentioned a tool where um, firms were committing to having numbers like 30% of their interview pools be um, students or attorneys of color. And then also looking at promotion and um, who's getting cases, looking at those numbers to assess um, why attorneys stay or why attorneys leave. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also then building in accounting measures. What happens if you don't um, reach the goals that you set for your firm, right? Like what happens if um, supervisors are not combating like microaggressions in the office Mm -hmm. or what happens um, if you find that there are compensation gaps between um, genders in your firm? What do you do when you get those numbers, right? What policies or procedures have you put in place if you find that the numbers don't look as great as you thought they did? Yeah, that's actually something I was thinking about too, because, you know, we talk a lot about how men generally get paid more than women for similar areas, similar jobs. But are there other, especially in the legal industry, are there other patterns that you guys, that you see when it comes to minorities? Are there certain areas that they are always treated differently? Um, Things like that, kind of like on the level of inequality when it comes to pay. Um, I, I think the they absolutely happen um, when it comes to pay. Um, black women are paid less than white women, um, even so. They so then that also means that they are paid less than white men when you're looking at the gender pay gaps, the compensation gaps. Um, but also, as I mentioned before, retention and promotion. Like, are there true opportunities for them as advancement? The national average for attorneys of color to stay in their law firm jobs is three years. That is not a long time. That no, does not, equal, not that does not equal like a path to partnership, right? So what um what things are in place to create opportunities for advancement? Other issues that have come up when speaking with attorneys of colors are, do they have autonomy over their work? Are they given the training that they need and that professional development that they need to succeed in that area of law that they're practicing? Um, But then also, are they watched more closely than others? There was also a national um, survey or a national study that went around that's becoming more popular where um, partners at law firms were given memos um, by first-year associates. And um, a portion of the partners were given a memo and they were told that it was written by a white male. And then the other half of the partners were given the same exact memo, but told it was written by a black male. And the uh, the evaluations that came back were drastically different for the white male versus the black male. Mm-hmm. So realizing things like that when it comes to how bias shows up in even your ability to supervise um, uh, an attorney of color and how you could combat some of those issues. Yeah. Um, so those are things to really ask and assess and see whether or not your firm is contributing to disparities or helping create spaces of inclusion. 
Yeah. And I think a lot of what you talked about too, unfortunately, um, sometimes people, it's more subconscious for them. So they may not even be realizing that they're responding to those two memos differently. So I think that's probably even something that's even more difficult to come to come past, you know, how do you deal with the fact that a lot of these uh, issues may be just happening subconsciously? You know, people are so used to doing them and so used to society acting a certain way that they don't even realize at this point in time they're outwardly doing it. Is that more difficult to change than something that is outward and something that is more planned? I don't think it's difficult, but I think you need to have the information presented to you in many different modalities, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're doing the climate surveys and you're getting the stories, if you're looking at your retention numbers, you have, you have numbers in the form of data, right? And so you put those two together with the stories and the lived experience and the quantitative data, you're able to see that biases are playing out and that your firm and you individually are contributing to that. You have to acknowledge that first. And it's not saying that you are a bad person, that you are a racist institution, or that you are creating hostile work environments, but it's showing you that biases exist, so you have to acknowledge them in order to combat them. If you don't acknowledge that there is a problem, you can't fix it. Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier was uh, microaggressions. Uh, You had Mm -hmm. mentioned it a couple times. And one of the things I think people, again, it's all about education and they just don't know. Would you be able to give us some examples that uh, attorneys or others could look for in their law firm to be able to identify those type of activities and uh, really be able to make those corrections? So uh, a common example, right? Um, We know that in research we've identified – a bias that exists for people to gravitate towards other people that are very similar to them, right? So we then tend to invite them out to lunch or introduce them to important clients when they come um, to the firm. We are getting to know them outside of the law firm. And Mm -hmm. because that um, experience happens, they're top of mind when we're thinking about um, different assignments and different cases to give to attorneys. So I'm specifically talking about like partners taking on that informal relationship building that happens. It becomes a microaggression when you're only doing that to a small group of associates or to a maybe even just to one associate and you're neglecting to have that outside relationship building with other attorneys because that translates into those other attorneys and more than likely those women or those attorneys of color that um, are not top of mind when you're assigning cases. They're not getting the opportunity to build those hours like they could or to work on those important cases um, because you've unintentionally excluded them from that relationship building. So that is saying to them, you're not valuing them or getting or valuing them as a person outside of the work that they can do for you in the firm. It also says to them that they are unable to bring their authentic selves into the workplace because you are not expressing interest on who they are as a whole person. 
Yeah, that totally makes sense. I was thinking about this because I think, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the legal industry is just so slow to adapt um, in, in many areas, including diversity. And so I think a lot of people struggle when they realize, hey, we really do need to be better about being um, more inclusive at our firm or just respecting everybody equally. And so I think a lot of times people, leadership goes out of their way to be more inclusive um, because they feel like, and I don't want to misstate how this is coming out of my mouth, but like they feel like it's it's the right thing to do and they want to make a difference at their firm. But then I think they they go overboard and then you maybe even start to create additional microaggressions. You know what I mean? Like they're so focused on changing the culture that it causes these other problems as well. Does that make sense? I haven't necessarily seen that. I think I'd actually hope for for firms getting to that where they're overemphasizing diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. In my experience, I have not seen that. Okay. I have seen the desire there. I have seen um, the implementation of diversity committees, of um, of programming and bringing in speakers, but not done wholeheartedly. Not done with a full annual budget in mm-hmm. um, in the in the firm's um, HR uh, like spreadsheet. Yeah, right? definitely. It's usually like clumped in with an HR budget yeah. or what's ever left over. Um, because it's like icing on the cake and not considered like an egg in yeah. a batter. You yeah. know what I mean? That makes sense. That definitely makes sense. I think that's that's pretty common. You know, we we know we want to make changes. We need to do it, but they're not committing one hundred percent. They're not. You know, they're not hiring a leader of diversity inclusion. They're not building out that council. They don't have their own um, budget line. You know, it, it is. It's just mm-hmm. hey, this is going to fall under HR. I think we have a little extra money to do this each quarter. Things like that. You know, mm-hmm. we, we've talked quite a bit about the law firms. We've talked about, and my mind has been wrapped around, you know, within that firm. But I think it's equally as important that you have a diverse clientele. And that's something that you should look at as well. And yeah, something good... that, you know, because there may be a, a firm out there that just has one or even two attorneys. So, and that is a lot of them uh, that are out there. So I think that's also important as well. And, and kind of keeping that same open-minded. I didn't want people to think, oh, it's just me here. I, I don't have to think about this. But I think it's important to think about regardless if you're just a single attorney yeah. or if you have 20. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, Belinda, thank you so much. Um, I think today's session has been super helpful. You know, we talked a lot with you about not only how do you attract that diverse talent, but how do you really make sure you're retaining diverse talent? How do you make sure that your firm is committed to that diverse culture and taking on diverse clients as well, as Brad mentioned? So um, really appreciate you having on today. And of course, we would always love to have you back again. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these issues. And I really do hope that firms take this to heart and start implementing some of these things. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I agree as well. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to The Lex Factor, and we'll talk to you next time. Talk to you later. Thanks for tuning in to The Lex Factor. Lexicon takes care of business so you can take care of law. Learn how to build a better practice at lexiconservices.com.